Hello, I'm Andrew. Hello, I'm Lisa. Welcome to episode 66 of... Round the Archives. The podcast with a criminal mind. Yes. <coughs> Not really. <laughs> well, it's been a while since we've done a full episode around the Archives. Yes. But we've done quite a few in-conversations in the meantime, haven't we? We have, yes. And it's been an exciting few weeks. It has. In the world of Archive TV. Mm-hmm. Well, what have we had back in the last few weeks? We've had episodes of The Complete and Utter History of Britain, mm-hmm. which just appeared. It did. On BritBox, yep. as if by magic. Yeah, yeah. That was a lovely surprise. Mm-hmm. Um, a Radio Hancock's Half Hour. Yes. With Harry Seacombe, mm-hmm. which is very important, because that's mm-hmm. the only one of those that survive. Yeah. And uh, we've had off-air recordings of Till Death Us Do Part. Yes. Including an episode that was only surviving as a soundtrack. That's, mm-hmm. that's Monopoly. That yeah. one. I think we've got that one somewhere, the yeah. audio of it. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, exciting to have that back. Mm-hmm. And was it yesterday? Yes. I, I accosted you in the supermarket and yes. said, we've got episodes of Mogul come back. Mm-hmm. Episode of Hugh and I. Yes. And an episode of Sykes and A dot yes. dot dot. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's quite nice because we... Yeah talked about Sykes on Goonpod a while ago, didn't we? Did, we did, yes. So that, yes. Was, that was nice. And apparently there's more to come. Ooh. Indeed, if I take my time over editing, <laughs> I might be able to announce something else by the end of the episode. But in the meantime, mm-hmm. here's Nick Goodman, who joined us here mm-hmm. to talk about... Dr Snuggles. <laughs> So, Mr. Nick. Hello. Dr. Snuggles. Dr. Snuggles. Friend, he, friend of the animal world. Well, I, I, I thought about that. Dr. Snuggles, friend of the animal world. And I thought, well, you've got animal, vegetable or mineral used to be a series. So he's the friend of the animal world. Is he like short tempered with vegetables and ambivalent <laughs> about minerals? Well, what, what I, I, my, uh, actually, that brings me neatly onto the, the first moral problem I have with Dr. Snuggles. I love the series and we'll go on to that later. But um, there is a character called Nobby Mouse, who is basically the dysfunctional brat of the he's the Wesley Crusher of the um, <laughs> cranked up a bit. Um, he's this obviously needing an Asbo kind of little mouse with the the, the t-shirt and, and the squeaky voice and the cheese kind of thing like that he speaks like that and he basically ruins every episode by <laughs> by messing pissing around on you know kind of if, if there's a gadget to make Hill 
destroy it. Uh, and and snuggles. There is one thing you were talking about um, vegetable. Um, there is there, every single tree in the show is clearly sentient. Yeah, it's got a face. It inter- one of them interacts. One of them has a whole episode about them. The treacle tree, which is the treacle tree that spends most of the series holding this tin of treacle and looking sinister, like kind of <laughs> in, a, in, a in a sort of treacly sort of way. <laughs> but Nobby Mouse goes particularly berserk at one point and m- manages to land Miss Nettles, who's basically the Miss Mrs. Hudson of um, Dr. Snuggles, the, the house, the long-suffering housekeeper, sticks her up a tree, and to get her down on the tree, she he chops it down. Ooh, he chops it down, and it has a face and a personality, and he kills it. Now, Dr. Snuggles should have actually, if he was friend of the animal world, and the, he really should have actually taken this to task about and and sort of build it, because he, he's got a machine for everything. This is a, a little inventor, got a machine for everything. He should have invented a sort of Bobby Mouse out machine because he, he is just he seriously endangers everyone and there's an episode where he goes back in time and because he's stealing this wand and he wants to be the mouse king and they should have left it at that okay life choice bye bye <laughs> move on I was going to say is he the Scrappy Do but I don't think Scrappy actually Scrappy yeah. Do of the series but I don't think yeah. Scrappy Do actually killed many people no and he? He, he he was a, a little mindless brat but he was on the side of the you know, yeah. Nobby Mouse seems to be working against them all the time. He never does any work. Mm-hmm. He's a thoroughly unlikable character and ruins every episode, but he's there for the kids. Yeah. But, yeah, okay, anyway. I've got that out of my system. Right. But, yeah, he's, uh, he, he's a horrible little brat. And uh, he just kind of, and Snuggles is so nice. Nice. He doesn't do anything about it. Not a thing. But when you suggested doing Dr. Snuggles as an article, I thought, I don't think I've ever seen it. My only sort of knowledge of it comes from Neil Gaiman's Don't Panic book, where chapter 18 mostly concerns Douglas Adams and John Lloyd's work on the book The Meaning of Lyft. But there's a couple of sentences about Dr. Snuggles. And he's described as a cross between Professor Brainstorm and Dr. Doolittle. And I know you said you remembered uh, oh, Brainstorm. Brainstorm. Yes, I, I, in the 70s, I, I would always pick off the Brainstorm book off the shelf and um and devour it. I loved his wacky inventions and yeah there is a germ of snuggles there most definitely yeah. most definitely what's interesting it says that one of their episodes apparently won them an award although neither of them has seen either the award or the series <laughs> <laughs> I would say I have to say because every single episode is lovably inventive it's it, it, it basically throws imagination at you from the off yeah and um and you basically inanimate objects talk and at the center of it is dr snuggles but i think it's guess the award-winning episode right and i think it was the the um the amazing actually i've written the fidgety river but it actually has a there's every single episode the amazing the astonishing the the incredible da 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 da. and it's the fidgety river and i think he probably got that i think i'm guessing that's what it is because it's basically about i mean the the message here is hey kids don't put shit in the river exactly exactly (laughs) which for 1979 People might be amazed we were making this point in 1979 mm. and we still haven't done anything yeah. about it. Uh, yeah. But I remember the late yeah. 70s was quite... There was a lot of ecology yeah. in stories it at was. this point. And so it's amazing because it isn't, preach, isn't preachy <laughs> yeah. either. You know, uh, and the the whatever... The, the, the moral thing is, is the innocence from people mm. because at the end of that, basically a river... 
uh, everything has a personality. Everything that you wouldn't imagine has a personality has a personality. Wristwatches, clocks, um, well, no, sorry, pocket watches, uh, trees, the lot. Uh, even his shed where he invents everything, mm. Rickety Rick, has arms and legs and a lot of, oh, hello, doctor. <laughs> uh, and he, yeah, and he, he, he's got this... It's all thing, but um, the the river is nervous about going mm. into the sea. It's hiding it, in a cave. It's hiding it? in a cave with yeah. a little voice like that. I don't know. It's all I'll rolled disappear. up. It's all rolled up. It's 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 uh, dehydrating all the the wildlife and everything. But it's afraid of going into the sea because it'll disappear. And then you see chunks of the sea missing. Mm. And very square. Yeah, chunks. very square, very symmetrical, very kind of cuboid um, chunks of the sea missing. And the mystery is then rolled out. So, um, and it, it unravels, sorry, spoilers, sweeties. Um, it's all right, it's 1979. <laughs> it's 1979. Um, but basically when they go to, they, they go to this, they, you have planets for various things. If it's a plant-based thing, you have a plant planet. Yeah. With this one, it's birds that treat human beings like birds. Mm. And uh, there's another character actually called, I was going to do the, get to the characters later, but hey, there's a character called Winnie Vinegarbottle, who's the, the witch. She's a rather obese witch. And um, she lives in this kind of castle, which is covered in a, in a bottle. And um, she keeps this bird in a cage and goes, oh, hello, you know, say Joey and everything. And you hear the bird's point of view and say, oh, I don't know what to say to that. I'm you not know? called Joey. I'm not called Joey. <laughs> I don't, you know, and you see the bird's point of view and then the, you go to the bird's planet and they do this reverse mm. to humans. And they say, oh, and I'm sorry. When it was described to them, I'm sorry, I didn't realise they don't like it. So, well, yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll stop. Sorry, I didn't didn't know they didn't like being caged. And it's very much morally from the bird's point of view. And again, with the uh, aliens um, who nick the river in the Fidgety River, they, they oh, I thought you don't need that bit because it's full of rubbish. You wouldn't want it. Oh, sorry, we didn't realise, you know, we'll put it back, you know. Kind of. <laughs> and they, they aren't evil. And one of them, actually, I've got a note. They're called the Sloshies. The, the, and the leader of the Sloshies, what did I have about him? Oh, so as an LB, LB, LGBT insignia. Oh, he's got the rainbow thing. The rainbow yeah. thing on, yeah. His, yeah. on his thing. So, yeah. again, very very ahead of its time. It's it's a show ahead of its time. And with, an in, with the 70s innocence, you know. So you've got the best of both worlds, really. <laughs> but not only have you got Douglas Adams and John Lloyd writing for it, you've also got Richard Carpenter Indeed. as well, which, which surprised me. We're not worthy king of uh, um, you know children's TV or you know TV in the seventies and eighties. I mean, how prolific is that guy? And he's everybody. And you you think Douglas Adams? You think out of the ordinary crazy. But actually, he's everybody around. There's Paul Addis, who I think is the next, the other one. And between the three of them, they actually, everything's raised up to a, a zany level. So it's not as if Douglas's episode sticks out like a sore no. thumb. They're, they're all but, crazy. But there are Douglas Adams things in there. Oh, totally. There's Thursday, the use of the, Thursday. Y- yes. There's, uh, there's the whale. There's yes. the whale that's in there. There's tea, lots there's tea. of tea. And there's also the was it the get lost machine? Get lost machine. I mean, uh, every the, basically the premise is this this inventor called Doctor Snuggles, and he where he gets his money from as I don't know. We never ask those sort of <laughs> questions. Or I, I, I think he's been up to no good. I think so. There's, is that there's, wink at the yes. end that I don't trust? Now, <laughs> Snuggles is a totally benevolent character, but he's not touchy feely. He's your academic cuddly character. And he wouldn't. He wouldn't. You know, he doesn't. He never embraces any of these characters. So 
he winks at the end and yeah we're, we're in the opinion that i think he's yeah he's not all he seems he's a bit of a sly old devil and um even his his closest friends call him snuggles rather than his first name which we never learn but no there's yeah the, the two episodes that douglas adams wrote along with john lloyd who we i think was put in there just to make sure douglas mm. hit his deadline now, Lisa, uh, yes. you've got a John Lloyd connection, haven't you? I have. I once served John Lloyd's mum on a till in Sherbourne. Yeah, how, how did you know it was John Lloyd's mum? Because um, I'm sure she didn't flounce in and go, no. Hello, I'm John Lloyd's mum. She was talking to me with a person in front of the person behind about her son, who was in a television producer. And I think it was around the time QI started. And she he'd just got this thing greenlit for television. But it had been a struggle. So I just remember serving John Lloyd's man. Oh, sorry, I'll just have the salad. You know, <laughs> sounds like he's a, she's a dish. <laughs> yeah, basically, Douglas wrote the the disappearing mystery. Hmm. Um, but yes, uh, Miss Nettles, the long suffering Miss Nettles, the housekeeper, who's basically looks like everybody's primary school cookery teacher. You know, very very in a bun. You know, little old lady, and she's constantly being tormented by Nobby Mouse, who, as I say. Snuggle should have dealt with that really all she does is uh, with, with this one he uh, Douglas has a lot of fun with the machines that he buys the, that he buys that he the invents because he, um, he, he, he basically they're lost the, um, the, the characters uh, one by one the characters disappear I said I know we'll get lost ourselves <laughs> and there's a get lost machine which goes all over the place which it's a wonderfully random and there's a in, um, later on in the Fidgety River uh, Ms. Nettles quite rightly resigns, and um, she she goes. Oh, oh no, no, it's before she resigns. No, give notice machine she has as well. I think that might. I'm not sure if that's in that episode or not. But she, yeah, she's always resigned. So they give her a get give notice machine, and she always comes back, so it returns. But there's one time, and again, this is very Douglas, where there's a she she has this posh friend called um, Madam. Neptitude or something like that and uh, she um, always has tea with her um, every third Thursday okay. but she can never Madame Neptitude can never remember why she's turned up and, and said and every third Thursday machine <laughs> <laughs> again lots of tea with the dis is it the disappearing mystery or the fidgety where everything gets no the disappearing mystery everything gets zucked into space yeah. including their tea him uh, Miss Nettles and Madame Neptune's tea um, things, and they're all floating in space, and they've all got personalities. Mm. So you've got uh, the cloth, the tablecloth, yeah. saying, "Oh, I, 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 yeah. he wants to be a pillow." He wants it? to be a pillow. That's right. Yeah. Yes, he <laughs> wants to be a pillow. Cover. Well, it, it did. My mother told me to be a pillow cover. And I could <laughs> it did remind me a bit of Nelly because yeah. they do that sort yeah. of thing. It's like Nelly with a big budget. Yes. But there was a load of weird animation around this sort of. What late I, 70s period yeah. and what I love about it is unapologetic yeah it's just you know there's like Ludwig you yeah. know the kids you know there's a there's an egg that comes down and plays classical music to you yeah, well, yeah. whatever do but you're you know. absolutely thrown mm. into these worlds you are and they are very very complex mm. and I, I was sort of blinking a bit going this is a, yeah. I'm actually having to concentrate here to yeah. work out what the hell is going on and there's, there's I think quite rightly there's no explanation i mean mm. you know he brings out his pocket watch it's got a little face and it and, and, I don't, you know. <laughs> and of course one of the the, the major voices in it yeah there's pd ustinov who's of course the big yeah. the big scoop so i think um, a guy called jeffrey o kelly who i think by all accounts was an actor 
Um, he came up with the idea of Snuggles in the early 70s and wrote a poem about, you know, Dr. Snuggles' guide to a better life, you know, in a TV sort of way. And um, he got in, you've got the various parts interested in, and the, I think the artwork was done in the Netherlands. That's right, yeah. yeah. Um, and you've got, you've got Peter Ustinov as, the, as Dr. Snuggles and some of the other characters. I think there's also, I mean, they're really, I mean, there's, it's really bad shit crazy yeah. i mean there's there's this um camel called woogie it, it sort of sounds a bit like kenneth williams on a bender and um it, he's in the sky and he's, he's, he sits amongst the clouds and he has these sheep that go they're called the lavender sheep that sort of cavort around and dr snuggles has tea with him and um i think with the one the water one where they, everything disappears he in one of his cumps collapses because it's <laughs> there's not enough water and so it's, it's quite it can be quite dark at yeah. times I, I'm fairly certain that's used to not. Yeah. But John Chalice, yeah. um, very prolific. It, this actor. was news to me. I mean, um, we we we'd just, met John quite a few times, but he never mentioned it. I but. mean, the it's just uh, it's a case of spot the Chalice's yeah. character, and he's obviously having a lot of fun with it. I saw him, Ali, and I saw him at his one man show. You went to that. We went to that a few times. Yeah. Ali, who re remembers Snuggles a bit better than I do, I my main memory of it was. Watch it. The what? Watch, watch it. it. Yes, so we had you say when that. we were preparing the article. We had a, some naughty variations on that. Go figure. And uh, are we? Uh, it was part of that sort of what is now CBs. You know, this is your children's programs. And um, Doctor Snuggles was sort of, I think, debuted in about 1980 when I was at secondary school and had lots of kind of homework. And so it was on. And I remember the the opening music of Doctor Snuggles, Friend of the Animal World, and everything. The general gist of it. But I don't think I ever watched an episode. I think I must have watched an episode, but I don't remember any episodes. Mm. And then in the mid noughties we one of our many 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 raids to either hmv or virgin ali and i came across dr snuggles ivory oh i'm quite interested oh that's right and ali was hooked because she's a lot younger she's six years younger yeah. than me so she she would watch it avidly and oh we bought the box set and i kind of thought okay yeah, let's see what it's all about and i was really really impressed you know it's nice production values and these wonderful characters that <laughs> everything comes to life before your eyes you know with no explanation and um it's spot the chalice character he there's a there's a sort of bird that delivers the his post which sounds just like john pertwee doing <laughs> a cockney accent you know sort of you're not good grass thomas aren't you oh cool blimey gov you know kind of Oh, it's total Pertwee. And um, there's a, the, the most revealing one, I think, is a gangster rat, a gangster fox called Willie Fox, which has this rat um, thing. And basically, that's, I would say that was John Chalice doing a cross between James Cagney and Humphrey Bogart. Because <laughs> he gets, every time the rat does something wrong, he goes, Oh, you crummy rat. And it goes, which is almost Hagney's you dirty rat, which he never said anyway, but. You know, that's a popular myth that he said you dirty rat, but I and he sang the ball. And I, uh, yeah, in this one man show, we Ali asked him about it and he said, Yes, um, and I heard about who else was involved. And I said, Oh, great, I'll get to work with Peter Ustinov. And only to discover that Peter Ustinov recorded all his bits in advance whilst making a film abroad, so he never <laughs> got to work with Peter Ustinov. There's also a woman in it called Alwyn Griffiths, Alwyn Griffiths. And I Googled her, and she's actually more Ustinov's age than John Chalice. Yeah. So. She, she's a lot to do with Postgate. 
Mm. So she she's in over the engine. Oh wow! Uh, a lot of voices for that. I imagine she was pretty she's, established. She's also the voice of uh, Mrs. Pogel in yes. Pogel's Wood. But everyone's having a lot of fun with the characterisation, and um, definitely the, 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 it's spot the it's spot the who does what. Mm. Um, goodness knows who does Nobby Mouse because even I can do Nobby Mouse. Um, <laughs> was it you? Pull, it it wasn't you, was it? No. My voice had broken, hadn't broken in 1979, but no, I, I, there's one, there's a wonderfully mastery character called Professor Emerald, who has this long cloak and glasses and a distinguished sort of, it's sort of more Jacoby master. And um, he and his monkey assistant can inexplicably turn it, themselves into vultures if they want to spy on people. And he's got this wonderful voice. And I, I'm fairly certain that's a, that's a plumbed up John Chalice. What was the one that you didn't like, Lisa? You said it was too deep. Was that the oh, badger? Oh, the badger. Yeah. Oh, that. oh, yes, Dennis Badger. <laughs> yes. I, I can't work out whether that's Chalice or Euston or Because it almost sounds like it's slowed down, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it does. It's, it's, it's I have a bit of a thing about men with very deep voices. Because <laughs> there used to be a tunnel at work that was a, a, somebody with a deep voice. And if you were down an aisle, it sounded like there was somebody behind you whispering in your ear. <laughs> so it's, I find it a bit creepy. Oh, well, there, the there, there was a hilarious... I mean, this is going off the tangent a bit, but our friend Andy, whenever I used to go and visit him in Rickmansworth, and there were, he, well, I used to, it used to be the train to Amersham. And um, there was an amusingly deep and very bored voice this is a fast train to Amersham <laughs> imagine what the slow train's <laughs> like oh, this is a slow train to Amersham <laughs> <laughs> unbelievable but um, yeah I mean there's Dennis the Badger who's basically dresses a bit like Lenny from in, um, not in sickness and in health what's the thing in Mice and Men that's right um, and <laughs> there is a difference <laughs> Um, and you know he's he's a sort of you think he's going to be the gan of you know Blake Seven of, of <laughs> he's got a limiter in his head to stop him killing. <laughs> but he sounds stupid. But he, he, he Snuggles always get him to do the initial designs for all his machines. So right. he, he must he must have some qualification. Yeah. It's difficult to know where to begin with these characters. It's just they just go on and on. Can, and can then, I just jump in? Yeah, and yeah say, please do. This please thing do. about Douglas Adams and sort of you know writers always write yeah. about the things they're interested in. The thing the thing about the birds in the cages reminds me of um, again from mm. Neil Gaiman's book. Douglas has got a series of wildlife expeditions planned for 1987 to hunt down elusive birds, beasts and things, such as the kakapo. Have you ever heard of the kakapo? Well, the kakapo was a large flightless parrot whose major pastimes are sunbathing, parachuting and avoiding other kakapos. (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, yeah, so you've got the... You've got to, he, he's on, he's, you know, he, I mean, I think the, the basic idea and the basic story was done by um, Jeffrey O'Kelly, who mm. was the, like, the governor. But you can tell that Douglas is on, totally on board with yeah. all these things. And it's Douglas's really productive period, isn't it? That how much did he do in 1979, for God's sake? I mean, God bless him. I, 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 you can see how he burned himself out because mm. 79, he was, oh, he was script editing Doctor Who. Yeah. He was writing the second series of Hitchhiker. He was novelising the first series of Hitchhiker. He was adapting Hitchhiker for the first series of Hitchhiker for the the. There's the record. Record. Yeah. And the and probably collaborated with Ken Campbell on the 1979 stage show. And did the man never sleep? <laughs> 
he's on amphetamines, you know, you know, and and snuggles, which was you know sort of all put together in seventy nine. Though, I mean, there is a man dedicated to his work. Yeah. I mean, I think maybe it's because you know he was starting to get the work. They think right, yeah. hot dog, here we go, you know, as as Ernest Borgnine would say. Um, but yeah, um, but that's I, I think such a huge amount of output for um, for one year. I, I envy him really you know I, I would really love to be that prolific I mean I'm no, nowhere near as young as Dougie was when he did that but but no it, it's it's totally sold in with his ecology issues but done in a way that he would like like mm. light-heartedly yeah. um, and he got a, t- a tea a teapot in space that sort of <laughs> s- s- cries because you know because you know I've lost all the other tea stuff and everything and, and it's all taken Snuggles takes everything very seriously about pulling things together, and he he's he most on he can be on the most vital mission, and there's a, a crying monster or something that nobody loves, or and he stops to help them. There's this thing uh, like a Loch Ness monster in the water right. episode. That's yeah. right. They they go to some I forget the detail, but they go to some island, and um, they 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 say, "Oh, you're in league with the." I think is is it a roller coaster monster or or something like that? Because they can't call it the Loch Ness monster. They can't copyright. Go- yes, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Loch Ness monster would sue them. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful, um, but yeah, they, it's, they, got, it's got sort of hair, its hair is all awry. Absolutely, and then they comb its hair. That's and right. Give it a, you know, basically they they titivate it so we, it looks nicer. That's right, and they 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 they, they, they kind of um, it's not scary after all. It just yeah. wants to make friends. Why wouldn't anyone talk? And he's he's got the sort of very kind of upper class voice, and they they comb it down, and and again he can't he can take them a, he can take them the, the half the way, yeah. but only half away because uh, his mother's expecting him home for tea, and he <laughs> all goes back to tea. Yeah. But it's this wonderful way, and this is why Douglas Adams I think has survived, is because he knows how to take the absolutely extraordinary and and yet sort of turn it on its head with a prosaic twist and snuggles is this it's just a pitch perfect um vehicle for him yeah because that one's got um the sand king that's the island they go that's over. right that's sand and king, he's, he's doing his hercule poirot voice for <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> it's <laughs> me, it was... well not quite but it's he's doing a sort of french accent <laughs> yeah it's very close to his hercule poirot yeah but so. it, it, richard carpenter uh, draws from the wizard of oz in one episode with matilda junkbottom as the robot helper there um, that helps Miss Nettles with his uh, work. Why isn't she working? I know she needs a heart, and of course it's all very much Tim. Oh right, they, of course. And, yeah. and yeah. Um, what can be a heart? And in they they ask the the watch, and uh, no, 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 no way. And there's a, there's this lazy alarm clock. Basically, this <laughs> alarm clock that can't be bothered to work very much. And they they spend half the episode chasing around after this alarm clock. Because he doesn't want to be a heart, you know, and and they they win him round about being a heart, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the, yeah, as I say, it draws from the best, but it never shows to be derivative. I have to take issue with his some of his methods of transport. Okay, he's got a wooden spaceship. That's yeah. fine. You know, that's quite Wallace and Gromit. He has got this pogo stick stroke umbrella thing, yeah, right. which I I watch him and I think. Wouldn't it be just easier to walk? Because yeah. you were complaining, Lisa, that all his animal friends have to run to keep up. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> That's very true, actually. And also, um, if you listen very carefully to the voices of all the things he wor- he uses day in, day out, mm. his pocket watch, yeah. his pogo stick with the with the duck 
That yes, face. sort of umbrella. And yeah. um, in particularly Rickety Rick, the, the 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 shed which he creates all his his things in, they all very lugubrious voices that are fed up with him. <laughs> <laughs> No, get up there. It's not there, Doctor. No, that's the that's the, the umbrella. And they've got... Yeah. <laughs> and they're all... And rickety rick. Oh, well, you know, what is it? I mean, it's, I, it's Marvin as a shed. Basically. I think he means well, but my God, he'd be a nightmare to live with, wouldn't he? Well, he clearly is, because yeah. Miss, Hud- Miss, Miss Hudson... I'm, I'm, I'm identifying the character so much. Miss Nettles resigns regularly, so much so that she's got her own machine to resign in. Uh, the, the sort of give-notice machine, which um, part of which looks... Uh, that's the thing he was saying, he's not quite what he seems. There's a, a part of the machine that goes across her head like a plate, hmm. which suggests indoctrination. Ooh. Um, Ooh, so a bit of I, mind thing going yeah, on there. Yeah. I, I think... I, I don't think she returns entirely willingly. <laughs> um, so it, it, there's a there's a sinister side to skulls with very very subtle, mm. with starting with a wink, as you say. Yeah. And never but, trust a man who winks in yeah, his title I know. <laughs> Sorry, Sylvester. <laughs> but, but yeah, um, it, so he's he's appallingly benevolent to the point where he ignores sort of murder of trees. Particularly telling is that there is an, a later episode where he he says. Where am I going to make the f- t- for for a boat? I can't cut down my f- my tree friends. I thought, oh, but you're you're quite prepared to see one of them murdered in front of you. <laughs> oh, inconsistent. Let someone else do it, mm. and then it's not your yeah. fault. Mm. So uh, yeah, and also he's he's quite prepared to let his friends, his inanimate objects, and his animal friends change their lifestyle. You know, I mean, Rickety Rick turned in one episode turns himself upside down, takes his sides off and becomes a boat. <laughs> and and basically the, the wonderful line saying, I've done what I can, the rest is up to you. <laughs> Not the sort of line you give a shed every day. <laughs> I just, I thought, yeah, that's, that's Snuggles in a nutshell. They're just having a lot of fun with it. Well, I mean, thank you for suggesting it because I, I, as I said, until yesterday, I'd never seen an episode. And then we did two two in a row and, yeah. and it was an experience yeah. i'll have to say that it wasn't what i was expecting it was a lot more complex that's exactly yeah. my reaction when 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 we ali bought the dvds in the noughties yeah. that was exactly my reaction i thought to myself i was expecting a a slightly twee because mm. the name mm. the name put yes. me off a bit yes yeah i'd like to before we wrap up though i'd like to talk about the music oh yes. um the I we uh, Ali and I have been saying we would very much like um, to see a, a musical release of um, the Snuggles music because it's so varied. You've got the sort of getting into the story, which is a variation of the theme, you know, and you've got Mrs. Nettles' theme, which is like an a cappello kind of almost. Uh, Derek Griffiths-y, and you've got. Um, Matilda Junkbottom, which is a sort of like an electronic waltz, and um, and the sort of menacey sort of and whenever his baddies turn up, but no, I, I, yes, I, I would welcome a Snuggles musical release. Uh, just a few more uh, things on the cat, Dreamy Boom Boom, which is his rather wooden spaceship, runs on a, an old-fashioned lavatory uh, <laughs> chain. chain, which is pulled. Uh, 
regular intervals by Nobby too early and involves smashing the machine. If the episode's underrunning, get Nobby to fuck everything up. <laughs> too, you can get I it, can believe that. To mess everything up. Um, <laughs> it, it, it becomes a regular thing. The other thing is there's a, there's a character called Granny Toots, who's this little old lady with a, with a knitted thing, and she looks after lots and lots of cats. Including one called the Cosmic Cat, which is basically oh the Cosmic Cat. What was all that about? I, um, I, that's uh, basically just the Cheshire Cat from Alice in Wonderland. Yeah, it is exactly what it looked like. Yeah. It's a space age version of the Cheshire Cat. Yeah. And he he kept, there's an episode and because unfortunately the DVDs aren't sort of this is number one, this is number two. So you're watching all that of order. So Matilda Junkbottom is sweeping up things and taking for granted, and then they're inventing in the next episode. Yeah, with with Granny Tootsie, you've got the basically another old friend of uh, Snuggles. And he's she's looking after all these cats, and the cosmic cat basically comes to, comes down in the spaceship. And I'm fairly certain that's used enough. Um, <laughs> but he seems like he seems to be ever lumbered with cats because in Logan's Run, he's he's plays the old man that's left yeah. as as part of the only person in civilization. Long after times the, I've seen that. that. Yeah. And he he's he, he's in, he's in an old what's left of the White House, which totally overrun with ivy, but looking after tons and tons of cats and the cosmic cat is basically yeah it's the cheshire cat with a with a sort of antennae you know it's got good electricity space. sparking between if they want something yeah. from the unknown and space that they're not quite sure about they always call it the cosmic cat they're basically it's a, you know, just in case you've forgotten he's a cat you know, even though it's, you know he's a fun character and again, unapologetically inventive. It's just so much to look at. An unexpected joy. Yeah. And um, I, I think you... I don't know... I, we commissioned this article last time I came round. I, I can't remember whose idea was it. I don't, know, I don't know. I honestly can't remember. But um, certainly something that I thought was rather twee in the early nine, in the early 80s as was became a revelation. Yeah, I mean, sometimes you, you sort of remember these things yeah. from... Or childhood, and you go back to them. They go, "Well, that's a bit thin." Yeah. But there, there was, as I said, there was a lot going on here. But then I have no memory of it. Yeah. So it's more, it's moralized, it immoralizes, but at the same way, it sidesteps the moralization by just being totally innocent. Yeah. You know, kind of, oh well, that wouldn't do, would it? You know, <laughs> sort of, you know, sort of. I oh, used about to eat an apple, and this worm comes up, saying, "Don't eat my house." <laughs> <laughs> Oh yeah, no, I'm sorry. I'm terribly sorry. I, you know, and he's and he's totally British as well. Yeah. But yeah, I like the way he says, "I'm Doctor Snuggles from, from Earth." From Earth, yes. yes. He, says that. <laughs> he doesn't say, "I'm, I'm from England." Yes, he goes, oh. "I'm from Earth." And I think the first episode, they go, you know, they, there's something to do with plants, and they they go to Plant Planet, where <laughs> every, the, everything's run by plants. <laughs> but yeah, lovely little series, and yeah. thank you for suggesting it. My absolute pleasure. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Nick. Bye yeah. bye. 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 Many thanks to Nick for yes. joining us to do that. Thank you, Nick. It was lovely to see him. Indeed. Yes. And we should say also thanks to Paul Chandler, who was yeah. there. Yes. But kept quiet he did. throughout the he article. Did. Yes, he just listened. But he was there for moral support, he wasn't was. he? Yes. Yeah, we recorded that a while ago now. Yeah. Yeah. And amazingly, we've got 
one extra thing of Dr. Snuggles stuff yes. has come to light yes, since, since then. then. Yeah. For the new book edited by Kevin Davies about mm-hmm. Douglas Adams, yeah. 42, the wildly improbable ideas of Douglas Adams, mm-hmm. amazingly has a little bit of Dr. Snuggles in it. Yes. As in Douglas Adams's archive was found a storyline for Dr. Snuggles and the Peanut Solving Machine uh, by Douglas Adams and John Lloyd. Part one, the kitchen. Dr. Snuggles is talking to Miss Nettles about the forthcoming birthday for eight of the mice. Miss Nettles is preparing eight birthday cakes. Nobby listens. Mm. And probably it all goes down here like the moment Nobby's involved, yes, doesn't it? Yes. But that's lovely to see. Mm-hmm. And that's an excellent book, isn't it? It by? is. It's a bit hefty. By but... Kevin. And uh, we we had to plug it because he's, yes. he's plugged us in he hitchhiker's has. circles, hasn't he? Has. he? Yes. So that's, that's lovely. Yes. But now here's Martin mm-hmm. uh, to talk about the Waltons. Fondly on those times when we used to gather round our rented television set and occasionally watch shows as a family. I can remember the dismay and heartbreak when it was one of my mother's favourites that we had to watch. Even though, in later times, that same show would become as fixed in my own life as it had once been in hers. As a television show, The Waltons has become something of a benchmark for the kind of kitsch, cheesy wholesomeness that has rather gone out of fashion in these more cynical and brutal times that we now find ourselves living in. Nowadays, in the wider public consciousness at least, the series seems to be reduced to a few skits about its iconic Good Night Everybody signature episode endings, usually accompanied by some barbed reference to that outtake about Christmas balls that used to pop up on the sort of shows that made cheap laughs out of such things. But, as I've found recently, there's a lot more to the Waltons than this. Set, at least initially, during the Depression era in 1930s America, on one level, the Waltons tells the story of an ordinary, God-fearing American family who are, of course, far from ordinary at all, and does so with a certain amount of heartwarming optimism about the human spirit that is completely designed to make you feel a little better about life in general and restore your faith in humanity as the end credits roll. Inspired by the novel Spencer's Mountain by Earl Hamner Jr., which was in itself a fictionalised account of his own youth spent growing up in Virginia, and featuring an iconic theme tune written by Jerry Goldsmith, The Waltons tells weekly stories about a large, impoverished family surviving with little but themselves to rely on in an idealised and mutually supportive rural community, and whilst the stories tend towards the uplifting and occasionally the unbelievable, this is a series which has its heart very much in a good place, even if in some parts of the modern political map it has come to represent a lost world of some forgotten ideals and the sort of lifestyles that certain sectors of modern society might still want to aspire towards bringing back. There was once a speech made by President George Bush about making the American family a lot more like the Waltons and a lot less like the Simpsons, which made headlines at the time, but which didn't age well, especially as the Simpsons, it turned out, were exactly the kind of suburban family much of America actually closely resembled. 
But that speech did stir up a lot of comment and ill feeling and triggered the same kind of thinking that tries to push our own culture back to some rose-tinted ideal of a country as portrayed in 50s film and television, which probably never really existed, but certainly appeals to those who like to think it did. Because, let's be honest right from the start here, the Waltons are a white American family and whilst they might be living in hard times, they still have a lot of advantages that other people living through those times might not have had. They seem to own Walton's Mountain, a large area of land which supplies them with enough timber to run their own sawmill and lumber business and supply their community with a commodity that was still much in demand even during those lean times. They're able to run a vehicle, feed animals, buy radios and put food on the table of that large house that they all live in. This is a household consisting of seven children as well as their grandparents and whilst viewers seem to accept that they work very hard to achieve all of that and there are several obstacles put in their way over the series, this is probably not the typical experience of most American families during those difficult years. The Waltons ran for 221 episodes across nine full seasons on CBS between 1972 and 1981 and was, as is later stated prominently on the title card of the episodes, a Lorimar production, who would later be responsible for bringing us a completely different kind of family saga in the form of Dallas, which started its run in 1978. And even after cancellation, the series refused to disappear completely, with half a dozen made-for-TV movies popping up on television every so often for a further 15 years after the series ended. As part of my recent quest to try and re-examine some of the supposedly cheesier elements of the television archive, I picked up a copy of the first season of The Waltons on DVD in a charity shop, fully expecting to find it to be sickly sweet and risible. And yet, when I started watching a couple of episodes, I found that, for a lot of the time, it was actually an incredibly compelling drama series with some astonishingly good performances and some seriously enjoyable storytelling week after week after week. It's not perfect, of course, because the weekly grind of television production of 25 stories every 52 weeks cannot hope to reach the heights of greatness all of the time, but The Waltons does actually have quite a high hit rate for good, solid, satisfyingly thought-provoking episodes. I shouldn't have been surprised by this, of course, because one of the reasons why I was drawn to that set in the first place was a fond memory of settling down on Sunday mornings and enjoying the reruns that were shown on Channel 4 during the 1990s, and reminding myself that back then I may have come to mock, but found that I was sticking around just to see how the stories unfolded each week. I don't think that I'm alone in that. During those pre-multi-channel years, those weekly viewing habits and rituals were simply part of life for a lot of us, and shows like this, shown in unusual time slots years after they had ceased production, found entire new generations to charm. And there is something enjoyable in watching a TV show in which goodness and kindness is celebrated, especially when you watch as much American television as I do. It really is something of a novelty to be watching a show in which the characters are not pointing guns at each other all the time, or screeching around corners in expensive motor vehicles, or becoming involved in drug rackets in the name of entertainment, and aren't all out to get one over on their fellow humans as much and as often as they can. Strangely enough, the opening episode The Foundling actually does feature a car chase of sorts, although that episode is one in which a deaf child is abandoned pretty much on the Walton's doorstep, taking us immediately into the area of the kind of issues-based story that the show would become well known for dealing with sensitively. And because this is an American drama series, guns would feature occasionally, as it seems that they eventually must in almost all such shows, no matter how wholesome they may aim to be. But at least their first appearance was four episodes in, during an episode where the men actually go off hunting in a time when doing such a thing might actually put food onto their tables, which at least does slightly justify their presence. Naturally, it is made perfectly clear that John Boy, despite the heroic conclusion to the episode, is a reluctant gun-toter, 
and this possibly helps to reveal the more liberal underlying themes of liberty, inclusiveness, tolerance and understanding that the series as a whole, perhaps because of the political leanings of some of its writers and performers, does its best to promote. During that episode, unsurprisingly called The Hunt, in one of the many unexpected turns the series makes, John Walton Sr. is perhaps incredibly actually attacked by a bear. He survives, of course, but the stuntman makes the attack look pretty ferocious, to be honest. There are criticisms of the series, of course. You don't get to see anything other than a white face until that fourth episode, and whilst that particular actor, Teddy Wilson, is seen as being as much a part of the friendly Walton's mountain community as anyone else, and is one of those close friends making up the hunting party, it takes until the appearance of Lynn Hamilton playing the African-American semi-regular character Verdi Grant in an episode called The Scholar towards the end of that first season, before the very different kinds of hardships that non-white people might have been struggling with are even mentioned. But this series is primarily the story of the Waltons family and their interactions with the world, as, for good or ill, it rolls up in that way it will on the doorstep of that big old house in Virginia. Some of the stories do take place, at least in part, over at another nearby house owned by the Baldwin sisters, and several plot points involve visits to the schoolhouse, other neighbours' homes, and Ike Godsey's general mercantile store, which basically appears to be the only shop in the entire county and serves as the hub for much of what goes on in the community, even serving as a makeshift schoolhouse when the original is burned to the ground in one episode, actually by Richard Bradford, the man in a suitcase himself. Events in many stories take place on the highways and byways of Jefferson County, and there are occasional visits to the buzzing metropolis of Charlottesville, which, despite fairy tale mentions of exciting faraway places like New York or California, seems to be as big as the ambitions of the Waltons and their friends sometimes get. But it is to the hearth and home of the Waltons themselves that most of the stories take us, and with three generations, two pairs of adults living alongside seven children, one of whom is an aspiring and admittedly talented writer, and the dog Reckless, all having various adventures, trials and tribulations, there are plenty of stories to be told, especially as that road through their little town does seem to be a magnet for drawing in all sorts of unlikely visitors in that way that possibly only the imaginations of writers working on a television series can. But the series itself is solid enough and tells stories across that first year that showcase all of the family to a lesser or greater extent, each getting their own moments to shine, even if they must sometimes have wondered whether their character was getting forgotten about in all of the melee. The original title sequence, which introduces viewers to the family as well as the show, is a story in itself, although it was replaced in subsequent seasons with perhaps the more familiar sepia-tinted photographs version. The camera flies across the colourful and admittedly beautiful Virginia landscape before settling upon that now iconic house and entering through an upstairs window in which the series star Richard Thomas, who plays John Boy Walton, is busily and earnestly working upon his journal. He's interrupted at this labour of love by the honking of a truck's horn as his returning father and co-star Ralph Waite, as John Walton, drives up towards the house from where Miss Michael Learned, playing his mother Olivia Walton, emerges looking, as she often will, slightly concerned. We ought to pause awkwardly here, much as these co-stars have to in order for their name captions to appear, because we have to recognise that qualifier on Michael Leonard's name. Adding the miss was deemed necessary because her name was very much thought of as being a male name, even though the world was full of male Leslies and Shirleys and Marions and even a boy named Sue. It was felt that audiences, rather surprisingly, might be confused by this, and the credit was adjusted accordingly. Maybe they were worried about the typesetters on the TV guides constantly phoning the production offices to check. Who knows? It took until series six and the departure of the supposed lead character Richard Thomas, happily concluding his five-year contract, for the producers to finally feel confident enough to drop the miss, and several decades more for Star Trek Discovery to give a major female character the same name. Learned that herself would depart the series as a regular after series seven of nine, 
although she did make occasional guest appearances and turned up in at least some of the reunion movies, and seems to have become very much more at peace with her part in the series in recent times. Meanwhile, back to those opening titles, and John Walton, presumably because such a scene might be set in earlier, less difficult times, is returning home with a big wooden radio set bought, we assume, for the family home, and so we must also assume this to have been a huge and significant event in the Walton family at the time. At this point, we are also introduced to Ellen Corby, who plays the grandmother, although that is not stated, and neither is her preferred title and the cheeky avuncular figure of Will Gear as the grandfather, wickedly grinning at this development in the household's possessions. And then, unbilled, most of the children gather from various corners of the house and garden to greet the arrival of what seemed to be this most exciting new technology, as indeed it must have been in the early 1930s, as it is lugged towards the front porch of the family homestead. The youngest child, still uncredited, dashes from wherever she has been enjoying herself to find out what she is missing out on, and as she joins the rest of the family, is scooped up into the arms of John Boy as they are delightfully framed as if posing for a family picture for some unseen photographer, and indeed within the space of a few episodes, that final freeze frame would magically transform into a framed picture hanging on some long-lost parlour wall as the viewers have been, rather cleverly, introduced to the entire setup of the show in a very simple yet effective way. For the record, those seven children were, in order of age if not important, John Boy, as I have already mentioned, and next in order we find the musically talented second son, Ben, played by John Walmsley, who seems desperate to be allowed to grow up and possibly supplant his older brother in terms of importance, private bedroom and influence around the family dinner table, but sometimes all that he manages is to simply prove to the family that he is not yet old enough to be trusted with such responsibilities, so on occasion his sole function seems to be to show off how unlike the mature, responsible John Boy he is and get blamed for trying too hard to grow up. That said, when in The Legend, an old military buddy of John Senior turns up, he rather maturely takes the blame for a fire which he is blamed for, so maybe he's actually already a lot more grown up than they give him credit for. Third up is the 13-year-old dreamer Mary Ellen, as played by Judy Norton, who, at least at the start of the series, has a rebellious streak and a tomboyish approach to life, and wants nothing more than to get away from this dull-seeming rural backwater and escape into the big wide world, preferably without lumbering herself with the responsibilities that come with family life and homemaking. This can often make her seem at odds with her mother, who generally seems to be entirely satisfied that her own life is precisely that. Interestingly, Mary Ellen has a desperate need to be important, and dreams of being rich and beautiful, and yet in the apple-picking-to-a-deadline storyline of the minstrel, she tries to run off, at 13, with a wandering musician, rather than stay to help out the family during a crisis. The family forgive her, of course they do, and later, during the crisis of The Deed, during which it genuinely seems as if the family might lose everything, she redeems herself by selling a prized possession, although her needy whine of and I helped out a lot, didn't I, Daddy, does tell us a lot about her character in the space of just one line. Erin is the second daughter, middle child, and sometimes seems to be all but lost in the crowd when it comes to distinguishing personality traits. Earnestly played by future novelist and filmmaker Mary Elizabeth McDonough, her main episode in the first year is The Scholar, in which she gets ill but rather enjoys both the attention this brings along with it and the opportunity to not be just one of the crowd for a while. It is these middle children that I most feel sorry for, and at least at first, they are the ones which most seem to struggle to seem relevant or even present in many of the family scenes. The one who suffers most, I feel, is Ben, as played by Eric Scott, 
whose main storyline in the first season, during the episode The Star, seems to be when he is desperate to make an impact when all of the other children appear to have won the various awards, rosettes and cups that churches and schools tend to hand out to children for being the best at whatever it is that they are celebrating that week. Somehow Ben seems always destined to be second best and forgotten about, not least in The Star, when his sheer desperation to win the spelling bee almost leaps out of the TV set, and you can almost feel the actor's similar pain when week after week he seems to be just making up the numbers and trying to find a line to speak in order to justify even being there. You spot him from time to time, fizzing with suppressed excitement, trying to hold in that desire to have something else to do and show off his acting skills, but at least in that first year he does seem rather too keen, too eager and far too underused. Next up is Jim Bob, played by David W. Harper, who at least has the advantage of being cute. Despite not being the youngest, he is the youngest of the boys and somehow gives off an effortless charm that I'm assuming is lost a little as he ages in the series, but he definitely gets some rare and enjoyable character moments, especially when playing opposite Will Gear. Despite sometimes being shirtless under those ubiquitous dungarees that most of the family seem to wear most of the time, he gets some fine character moments, including some nice subplots like hatching a duck egg under his armpit in the episode The Townie. You can almost feel the suppressed frustration of some of the other kids as he steals the scenes from right under their freckled noses every single time. The youngest child, the baby, and sometimes the neediest of them all, is Elizabeth, as played by Kami Cotler, who does get that special featured place in the title sequence, remember, but generally spends most of her time doing kid stuff, sometimes alongside Jim Bob, and is generally there for the oh-how-sweet moments that seep into almost every television show featuring young children in the often mistaken belief that viewers will somehow find them terribly charming and endearing. She also serves as comic relief, in that she gets to say the comic payoff line in the meal sequences or in the candy store, in that kids say the funniest things way that can sometimes make your teeth itch, but she's also there for the false jeopardy of nearly getting flattened by a car in the townie or getting locked in a box in an abandoned house in the opening episode The Foundling. By right she should be completely dead in that first episode of course, and in the real world she probably would have been, but this is the Waltons, so she is rescued thanks to the misunderstood deaf girl and everything turns out fine in the end, and we learn a little bit about the prejudice deaf people suffer too. Even the youngest of these children is, at time of writing, in their late 50s, which is quite a shocking thing to realise, but we have to consider that at over 50 years old the show itself was made at a time closer to the period setting that it is recreating 40 years after the fact than to where we are now. Incidentally, almost the entire family are red of hair, which presumably explains most of the casting choices, and have a kind of too-good-to-be-trueness about them, which sometimes seemed grating when I was watching as a child, and my mother would look across the room disapprovingly, and I would find myself wondering if she wished that I was more like those lovely children on the television. But naturally, of all of the Walton children, it is inevitably the series star character of John Boy that gets most of the story time and attention because the series is built around his character for at least the first five seasons. That name, John Boy, incidentally, is simply local terminology for John Walton Jr., by the way, but I don't suppose I really needed to tell you that. Over the course of just that first season, brimful of the kind of basic human decency that sometimes causes the more cynical amongst us to roll their eyes in sheer disbelief, he is very much the moral core of the show, sometimes even more so than his parents. For whilst John Walton is a fundamentally decent chap, he does have his flaws and remains something of a pragmatist, despite his much-feared word being the rule of law in his family's home. He is, however, a hugely reasonable man, and probably not to be feared at all, but the children do not like to cross him, and when he comes into conflict with John Boy, you know things are really very serious indeed. John Boy is still a confused schoolboy during this first run. We are aware that he is a naturally gifted and talented writer with places to go, but not yet, but he seems to be still very naive in the ways of the world, and in matters of love, and even how to make telephone calls down at Ike's store. 
So across that first season we share in his experiences of growing up, sometimes frustrated, in the tiny backwater of Walton's Mountain, whilst dreaming big dreams of somehow becoming a successful writer one day. Obviously the conceit of the series is that he will eventually become a successful writer because we have the show to watch, but along the way to that seemingly impossible life goal he is often willing to sacrifice his own plans in the name of honour, justice and decency. At one point he borrows an ancient typewriter from the Baldwin sisters in order to send some of his writing to a New York magazine and is horrified when Mary Ellen sells it to a passing junk trader. Mary Ellen moves heaven and earth to retrieve it, but it is John Boy who is wise enough in the ways of the literary world at least to recognise a rejection letter when he gets one, despite that New York City postmark getting the whole brood into an excited tizzy. Despite having little in the way of possessions, John Boy does possess a very welcoming sense of fairness. It is he who invites almost everyone he meets, from the wandering minstrel to the much-loathed group of gypsies, into the family home in their times of need, as well as the abandoned movie star who is, like the circus troupe and the literary man, one of the many unexpected people who just happen to turn up in this tiny dot on the map in the very back of beyond. He's not above throwing himself into the fray when necessary either, fisticuffs ensue in both The Boy from the CCC and with the darker side of the extended Waltons family in The Dust Bowl Cousins, and when he is robbed during his experience expanding money-making move to the big city of Wheeling to earn money to help the family save their livelihood in The Deed, he throws himself into a fight with the hoodlums that robbed him and is well rewarded for his efforts. Actually, the deed is a bit of a rite of passage for John Boy all round. Several times his awkwardness around the girls he likes lead to unhappy outcomes. But here he gets kissed by a girl who shows him several kindnesses because he's basically a good person and he transforms from the awkward boy seeking permission to eat his sandwiches in his room and wonders whether or not to add a two-cent roll to his five-cent soup in a bar to the confident young man able to contribute his $50 reward money into the family fund needed to pay for a solicitor to prove ownership of their land. And in a world where $200 represents absolutely everything that the family can possibly scrape together, a dollar is the kind of sum that children can only dream of saving up for, and $2 to pay a doctor to save a child's life has to be scraped around for, he is still prepared to do extra work simply to save up and buy his mother a washing machine to relieve her of some of life's burdens. Although, as is often said, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, and his efforts to do good sometimes lead to misunderstandings when third parties interfere so his mother rails against him helping the Baldwin sisters. A Jewish family fleeing Nazi Germany fear his attempts at friendship, and his sister betraying what she didn't realise was a secret leads to a brief falling out with Verdi Grant when she feels that she can no longer trust his word, despite John Boy's word being one of those things that you can definitely utterly depend on, almost to the point of sickness. And in later years he would get a car and move away to take up his place at Boatwright University, and even be recast for a while, being played for two seasons and a couple of TV movies by Robert Whiteman. But it is Richard Thomas who is, inevitably, the actor most associated with the role, and he freely admits that Goodnight John Boy is likely to be the headline that announces his passing whenever that should come to pass. Of course, it's unfair to suggest that any of the six other children lack screen time because of a lack of talent. There were simply so many of them that they couldn't all feature in main storylines all of the time, and I suppose child actor labour laws would have restricted just how much any of them were able to work on the show, at least until they got a little older, and later on significant cast departures would place others of them centre stage and allow them to make the most of their opportunities of being in the spotlight, even if remarkably few of them actually went on to having huge acting careers. Of the adults, it is probably Ralph Waite who went on to have the highest profile of the cast after the show ended, even though he didn't quite stick around to the very end of the regular series, as the last couple of seasons tended to focus more and more on the lives of the Walton children as they grew up. In a very diverse and politically active career, he appeared in shows as different as Carnivale and NCIS in his later years. 
Michael Leonard, as I have already mentioned, left the show after the seventh season and was only 11 years older than the actor playing her oldest son. Once everyone accepted that she wasn't a man, she would leave the show in that seventh year and have a very successful television career despite being eternally identified as Olivia Walton. You'll even be able to spot her in 2022's Netflix drama about Jeffrey Dahmer, should you wish to watch it. The fascinating actor Will Gear, of course, didn't live to see the end of the series, dying as he did in 1978, six years into the run, but this part was the crowning glory of a long career, one which had been severely curtailed by him being blacklisted for not naming names in the 1950s. Quite often, as with lots of other character actors of his generation, he turns up as a sinister villain in shows like Mission Impossible and The Invaders, and it sometimes seems strange to see lovable old Zebulon Walton being sinister and up to no good in those other shows. Ellen Corby was a well-known television face long before the Waltons came along to define her entire career and win her three Emmy Awards. Before the Waltons, she appears in just about every cowboy series ever made in one way or another, and even played Lurch's mother on The Addams Family. But it is as Grandma Walton that she is best, and possibly most fondly remembered, despite the fact that she struggled to carry on in later seasons after suffering from a stroke during the fifth season, which severely reduced her screen time. And yet somehow she battled on to the end of the eighth season, and was even able to appear in five of the six reunion movies. We see little of the extended community living round Walton's Mountain as recreated on a Warner Brothers studio set boring onto the Los Angeles River during that first season despite the schoolroom being full of the kind of wide-eyed young performers that Hollywood seems to churn out on a conveyor belt somehow. Guest stars who apparently live locally come and go in one-off appearances, but in the expanded universe surrounded Walton's Mountain, we do get regular appearances by the rather lovable Ike Godsey, the owner of that store, played with both grit and a determined twinkle by Joe Conley, and the aforementioned Baldwin sisters. They are a pair of spinster sisters living in a large house that is something of a shrine to their late father. Mamie Baldwin is played by Helen Klebe, and Emily is played by Mary Jackson, and whilst their nervous naivety is largely included in the series as comic relief, there is a tragedy to their lives that drives several key moments, and it is their continuing production of their late father's concoction known as The Recipe, basically unknowingly they are producing bootleg whiskey, that keeps people coming to their door. Their once vast extended and idealised family is all but lost to time, but occasionally rogue elements turn up and usually it's because they have some dark plans afoot for the family fortune, inevitably involving the recipe in some devious way. We are also introduced to the Reverend Matthew Fordwick, as played by John Ritter, the schoolteacher Miss Hunter, played by Marie Claire Costello, who is one of John Boy's inspirational mentors who harbours high hopes for his future as a great American writer, and John Crawford as Sheriff Bridges, all of whom would make regular appearances on the show throughout its long run. Each show would open and close with a narration spoken in elderly, nostalgic and effortlessly avuncular tones by the series creator himself, Earl Hamner Jr., or Earl Boy, as we can only assume he was once known. Presumably, given the lines he gets to say, he's speaking as an older version of John Boy, but in a peculiar way, he is also speaking as himself, as it is his own memories that the series is purporting to show to us. Earl Hamner Jr. was the oldest of eight children, and his father's struggles during the Depression years inspired the 1970 novel The Homecoming, which inspired the TV movie and acted as a sort of pilot for The Waltons as a weekly television show. Alongside The Waltons, which is arguably his best-known work, despite him also being the creator of Falcon Crest, Hamner is also credited as the writer of eight episodes of The Twilight Zone during its original run in the 1960s, six novels, and has a whole host of credits as a writer for hire on series as diverse as The Invaders, Wagon Train, and Gentle Ben. Of course, the entire series could have been very different if they had followed the model set by the 1971 pilot television movie The Homecoming, A Christmas Story, which was slightly recast when the series started. All the children that we recognise are present and correct, however, 
which probably shows off just how good all of them were and how well they worked together. And it is the adult roles that were mostly recast, with the exception of Ellen Corby, who obviously seemed perfect right from the off. The mother, father and grandfather are all played by other actors, Patricia Neal, Andrew Duggan and Edgar Bergen. And there's also an alternative sheriff, a completely different pair of Baldwin sisters and an utterly transformed Ike. And it does feel oh so very different to the iconic television series it spawned, if you ever get a chance to see it. But it is that now rather iconic television series that I find myself drawn back to. And I was genuinely surprised at how much I enjoyed rewatching that first season after all this time, especially as despite my 1990s experience of it, it was still living in my head as being a very kitschy creation that would bore me to tears. And yet, because of what we try to do on shows like this, since watching these episodes, I've looked into the history of the show a little bit more. And whilst I really couldn't see myself wanting to take in the entire nine-season saga of the Waltons family, plus those movies, I certainly think that I could handle seeing just a tiny bit more of it. Perhaps up until the point that Grandpa dies. However, I'm sure that you will all know about how it can be with these old TV shows. You read a synopsis of an episode you've not yet seen, featuring characters that you've started to get to know, and you start to wonder how exactly it played out on screen. And the next thing you know, there's another section of your shelving crammed full of yet another long-running TV series you're trying to find the spare time to watch. But whilst I'm fully aware that later years of the show did have a tendency to transform into something more caricatured, smaltzy, cheesy and hallmarky, and perhaps got a little too pleased with itself, those early seasons set in the Depression years when the show was truly centred in what we still mostly think of it as being, family values and hopefulness set in the depths of a time of poverty, made for some fascinating and well-structured storytelling and is well worth a look. I enjoyed my visit and I hope that you do too. And so I find myself wondering again about a surprisingly wonderful television series and looking back fondly upon those days when we used to gather in front of the family television set and follow its stories right up until those familiar voices would call out in the fading evening light. Good night, Lisa. Good night, Martin. Good night, Andrew. Good night, Martin. Good night, everyone. Good night, everyone. Good night. Many thanks to Martin for that. Yes, thank you, Martin. Martin's show Vision on Sound continues every Sunday at 7 o'clock on Fab Radio International. Mm -hmm. And it's also repeated on... A Wednesday at 10 o'clock. You're on it tonight as well. I am. Yeah. Ooh, exciting. (laughs) So you better listen to that one. Yes. But now here's you and me looking at... The Mind of Mr. J.G. Reader. Lisa. Good afternoon, Andrew. The Mind of Mr. J.G. Reader. Yes. How many years have we been planning to do The Mind of Mr. J.G. Reader? A uh, lot. Six or seven? Yes, yeah, something like that. <laughs> Basically yeah. since we started, yes. haven't we? Yes, we've never got round to it until now. We've never got round to it. Why have we never got round to it? Have we been almost scared of doing it? Possibly, yeah. Because yeah. we love it so we much. We do love it, yes. It's one of those shows that we discovered via mm-hmm. network. Yes. Because I'd never heard of it. I no, assume you'd never heard I hadn't, of it. No. 
And by the end of the first episode, we knew we really, really liked it, didn't mm-hmm. we? Yes. But explain, who is Mr. J.G. Reader and what is his mind? <laughs> OK. Well, he's, I suppose he's the assistant to the Director of Public Prosecutions, mm-hmm. or Sir Jason Toovey, as he's known in the series. He's not actually given a name in the, in the stories. He's yeah. just known as the... Well, well we, sh- we should say from the off that this is the work of Edgar Wallace originally, yes, isn't it? It is, yeah. And Mr. Reader first appears in a story, mm-hmm. and I almost don't want to give it away, mm-hmm. where there is a Mr. Reader, but yeah. perhaps not the Mr. Reader you were expecting. Yes. In that there's a character who says he's Mr. Reader, mm-hmm. but that's not all there is to it no i'm not going to say any more because i would say track down the mr reader stories and and read them (laughs) haha yeah but even edgar wallace i think realizes that his first stab at mr reader Mm -hmm. doesn't go the way that's the most interesting way no so for the rest of the short stories we have the Mr. Reader that you see on television, yes. basically. Yes, he, he sort of does a rug pull, doesn't he? And, and yeah. Changes There's a it twist completely. in the tail. There's yes. a twist. Yes. But, yeah, Mr. Reader is is mild-mannered, the word. That's what they say. Yeah. But I I think that's a, it's just a front he puts up. Yeah. Because behind it, he can be quite ruthless mm. and quite determined and, and quite steely, well, it's, really. it's the It's the bit in the first episode where he suddenly draws a gun mm. on John Bennett. Yeah, and you go, oh, hang on, mm. and he's also got a sword sticky thing, a he bit has. like Adam Adamant, he has. isn't he? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're going to give a quick run through of the series, yes. but concentrate on one episode, uh, the investors. Yes, but it's 1969 and 1971. Mm-hmm. Yeah, two series from Thames, mm-hmm. eight episodes per series. Yes, and Doctor Who fans may know Hugh Burden, who plays Mister Reader. Yes, from Spearhead from Space. Yes as Channing mm-hmm. and it's astonishingly different the, the two the way he plays the two parts isn't it yes. Channing is very very cold and alien yes and and Mr. Reader is is very precise yeah but is he a bit scared of ladies do you think I think he's he's respectful yeah and possibly a little bit scared of yeah. of, of, of revealing his inner self yeah to ladies. I mean, to me, he's the he's the antimatter version of James Bond, isn't he? Um, yeah. And I think that's why I like Mr. Reader and I don't like James Bond, mm-hmm. in that I can identify with one and not the other. <laughs> yes. But Mr. Reader has a fearsome housekeeper. Yes. In the in the ample form of Mrs. Hoochin. Yeah, in the television series. In the television series. In the series. books. Yeah. He has a housekeeper. Mm. But she's quite dismissive of him, isn't yeah. she? she? And she, she's like hardly him. in it as well. She's hardly in it, yeah. 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 But they need someone to be sort of a foil for him, really, mm. don't they? Somebody completely she's different. always making him meals. That he doesn't like. Like liver and sheep's brains yeah. and yeah. calves' feet and mm. all sorts of horrible things. Yeah. He, he never eats them. No, he doesn't, no. And sometimes he hides them in his briefcase, yeah. doesn't he? Yeah, he sticks them in his paper and, ta- and gets rid of them. Mm. <laughs> But uh, the other lady in his life is Miss Bellman. Yes, and he meets her quite early on, doesn't he? In the sort of second episode. Yes, it's in the episode The Stealer of Marble. Yes. Um, And he becomes involved. Well, not not involved, but uh, Miss Bellman sort of enters in on his world as he investigates uh, where she's working. Mm -hmm. Because they see each other 
on the train on the train on the tube. going to, yeah. going to work and yeah. she notices him and he notices her but mm-hmm. he's too shy to to, to, to do anything to do anything about it yeah yeah is she the one driving it do you think sometimes um possibly though i th- i think he's quite happy to carry on with it yeah but yeah she, sometimes she's the more active person she quite likes him i think mm. Mm. um even though he's considerably older than she is yeah but yeah she 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 finds him interesting yeah and intriguing and of course she actually ha- it occurs in two incarnations she does yes. yeah as uh, yes. from series one to mm-hmm. series two she regenerates off screen like yeah. romana doesn't mm-hmm. she so that that's quite fun yeah i have to say i do prefer the first yeah i was going to say miss marple no not miss marple <laughs> no, definitely not miss marple is no. it uh but yes the the, the first uh, miss bellman is is virginia stride mm-hmm. uh best known from my point of view for zed cars and play school i suppose yeah, yeah. um and the second uh, second miss bellman is Julian lewis and yeah, no, do we know her from from uh, much no no yeah. can't say i really seen her in anything else no. but uh, you've got Willoughby Goddard as Sir Jason Tuvey yes and you were saying when does the name Jason come in yes because obviously as I said in the books the the uh, Mr Reader's boss is never named yeah. but I think they needed well, to I had a, I had a quick this. look and yeah. the, the, there's a gov.uk site for names mm-hmm. and you can put a name in and it'll tell you it's occurrence over over time and the name Jason doesn't really appear on the graph mm-hmm. until about the mid nineteen sixties. Yeah. And you wondered whether it was perhaps a nod to Jason King from Department S. Yes. But there's only a month or so difference between episode one of mm-hmm. Department S reaching the air and episode yeah. one of Mr. Reader reaching the air. So, so it can't be that. Not. No. The other explanation is possibly Jason and the Argonauts. It I is. don't know. Yeah. I I just think I mean that, that's sixty three, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure who who the sort of um, creator of the series is. I guess it's probably Kim Mills. Yeah, but Kim Mills produces yeah. series one and so also directs if, some of it. I think he's probably just pulled a name. Maybe he thought Jason is a good classical name. Mm, I'm not, not, so, not sure about that. I don't know. Windsor Davies also pops up a few times. Yes, Windsor Davies he? is a regular in series two, isn't he? He's by far, because he, he, Mr. Reader works with various different policemen. Yeah. And um, Windsor Davies, he works with four times, which is, is a lot more than yeah. most of the others. So. But it, it's 1920s, isn't it? Yes. So it, it's that sort of flapper era, isn't yes, it? Is, yeah. is that the term? Yeah. So that so there's a, there's a lot of sort of villains in sort of big hats and things yes. like that, isn't there? Yes. So you, and they've all got quite good names as well. Mm-hmm. You've got uh, Harry Taub in there, isn't he? Yes. Was it Lou Cassio? Yeah. You've got Joe Melia as Mo Lisky. Yes. <laughs> I always like that that name. Mm-hmm. Colin Baker briefly turns up. He does. He's, he's not a villain. He's not a villain. He? He's he's well, it's yeah. very early on in his career, so he's quite young still. So. Yeah. But you you've got a lot of familiar names yes. you've got john ringham yeah. you've got david collings mm-hmm. trying to be chinese at one yeah, point that, yeah that's, a bit that, embarrassing. That, that's not great no uh john bennett ken yeah. campbell yeah. amanda barry's in there isn't yes. she because is. you've got some tv timeses yes that you managed to track down mm-hmm. and amanda barry's on the cover in flapper costume yes. isn't she yes which and is she's, the part she's isn't playing. she gone to the races with hugh, with, burden? With hugh burden yes there are some photos we'll, we'll show this when we do the video yeah but she's also in she's also a flapper in something else that night isn't she isn't uh, no, that week i that think week, or yeah. that might be somebody else but it's a very 20s feel that week hmm. yeah okay. 
Yeah. And it's sort of what, nine o'clock? Nine o'clock on Mondays. Yeah. The second series. I don't know when the first series yeah. was was shown. What mm. day? And we've also got uh, Michael Bates as well. Oh, gosh, yes. Doing his best eight half Otmo impression several yeah. years beforehand, before. haven't yeah. we? And yeah. again, that's not great. No. I mean, but there is one thing you wanted to say about mm. is it a series two episode? Yes, because in some series two episodes, they basically just made the story up. Yeah, they? yeah, they're not based on the short yeah. story. I mean, there's, there is quite a lot of short stories, but mm. there's probably not quite enough to do mm. sixteen episodes because there's long, there's there's short stories and there's sort of longer novels as well. Yeah, um, which would probably be too difficult to to do. So basically, yeah. in some series two episodes, they just take the character. Yeah. And and write a story. That's that's. If you didn't know, you would swear it was Edgar Wallace. Yeah. Uh, and the particular one is it's the man with a strange tattoo, which is the yeah. second episode of series two. Yeah. Which is dreadfully. It, it's it's. Is it a, is it a bit sort of it's a little, racist? It's a little bit racist. It's very British Empire. Yeah. Because it's the Brits are right. Yes. Yes. The thing of the British are right, and the Indians shouldn't be allowed to to have their own ideas. Basically, it's the story of a somebody steals a ruby mm-hmm. from a temple, and twenty thirty years later, one of the priests from the temple comes to take it back. So it's basically like the Elgin marbles and all this sort of thing, all these things that we've plundered. Yeah. And this this person gets shot by the woman that lives in the household. And it turns out that this um, this is a spoiler, so if you don't want to know this, skip through this bit. The Ruby was given to her by her first love, who was killed by the Indian priests for despoiling the temple. Is, is Dino Shafiq in that Dino one? Dino Shafiq is a priest in it, yeah, yes. Yeah. So at least he's Indian, at yeah. least. So, yeah, but it's it's apparently it's quite romantic, according to Miss Bellman, and I don't find it at all romantic. It's the one time where Mr. Reader doesn't sort of prosecute, I suppose because he, he hasn't got enough evidence, but he's also quite sympathetic towards the lady mm-hmm. because it, it, it's right, quite romantic. And yeah. you sort of think, hang on a minute, somebody died, but it, I guess it's okay because he's only a foreigner. Yeah. <laughs> But again, Mr. Reed has got that Sergeant Cork thing of yes. just because you're posh, you're not it, getting away with yes. it. Yes, doesn't mean you should get away with, with your crimes. Anyway, let me just very quickly blast through the episodes in mm-hmm. Series 1. So Series 1 starts off with the treasure hunt. Yes. The the mysterious disappearance of Sir James Tithermite's wife. Yes, Lady Tithermite. Yeah, and that's the one with, with John Bennett in, isn't yes. it? Yeah. But that episode only exists on a slightly wonky tape, yes. doesn't it? The rest of the yeah. series exists in fairly decent quality. There are even two episodes that survive in colour from series two. Gosh, wow! Yeah, but that's quite a good. That's quite a good sort of intro to yes. to how devious Mister Reader's mind can yeah. be, because it's the thing. Well, he he has a criminal mind and sees evil in everything. Yes. Yeah, so he can think how criminals think. Yeah, and he suspects that Sir James has killed his wife, but he doesn't got any way. But of he proving needs somebody it. to prove it. Yeah. 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 So he plants in sort of John Bennett's head that there's treasure in the yeah. basement of a, this little lodge. Yes. And actually it's the body of the of the, the, the of lady, woman, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. yeah. But that's quite quite a fun one. A stealer of marble. That's bonkers. That's bonkers and yeah. involves a lady stealing 
was it marble from marble from a park from, or, yeah, yeah. And, and graves as well yeah isn't it? Yeah. yeah and, and she she's used... going to make carbon dioxide yeah, yeah. 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 So a bit of chemistry with. yeah both of those are directed by kim mills and i really like the bit at the start of that episode where kim mills has put the camera on a bit of a wonk mm. and you follow a character downstairs and it, yeah. it's it's like sort of 30 degree yeah wonky camera yeah. there's no reason for doing that no, it just it's just to, it's just to be yeah. bonkers yeah, yeah. Uh, episode three is the Green Mamba. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the Molisky one, yes. King of the Underworld. Yes, they describe Mister Mr. Reader as being like a mamba. Yes, because he strikes. Yeah, he, he, will, yeah. he will strike, and then you you will You'll be, be bitten on the ass by yeah. Mister Reader. Yeah, sheer melodrama. That's the Michael Bates one. That's Tommy Fenelow, a, no, a notorious forger. There's quite a bit of forgery and stuff yeah. going on, isn't there, yeah. in, in these in these stories. Mm-hmm. The Strange Case, that's the Sellington Refugee Fund. Yes. That's one with Edward Fox in. Yes, and opium ha- opium dens. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. and somebody dressed as a Chinaman who's not. Yeah. I was going to say that happens in series two as well, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. yeah. That's directed by Dennis Vance. Mm-hmm. There's one, The Poetical Policeman, where Hugh Burden actually gets the writing credit. He does, yeah. 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 Um, we did a video about that one. Dramatised by Hugh Burden, yes. So if you want to know more about that one, seek out our video for that mm-hmm. for that one. Uh, the Troop. Mm-hmm. That's Art Loma and his troop of actors, isn't yes. it? Yes. That one. That one's quite devious. The, yeah. The, the, the way they set up the crime is incredibly mm-hmm. complicated. Yes. But it, it, it's it, it's good. It's good. The, uh, then series one ends with the investors, which we'll go through in a minute. In a minute. Yeah. Uh, series two is. The Duke, mm. Duke Dorsey, yes. a no- notorious Chicago gangster. He's a gangster, yeah. Um, with Ray McAnally. Mm-hmm. And with an accent. Yeah. Uh, man with a strange tattoo, which you already talked about. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Shadow Man. Yes. Uh, oh, that's the really weird one, isn't it? With um, John Stratton. The Shadow Man, Hallity, a bank manager, has withdrawn the largest possible sum from his branch and vanished. That's dramatised by Trevor Preston. Yes. So... Yeah. Who's lurking yeah. about on Ace of Wands at this, at this point, point as well? Because yeah. this is yeah. we're into seventy one now. Mm-hmm. Uh, Death of an Angel. Clara White, a silent film actress, has been murdered. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, that's the is that is that the Amanda Berry one? That's the Amanda Berry one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And Victor Madden. Yeah. And Michael Quinn from from Forty Towers. Uh, the willing victim. Someone is trying to kill Mister Reader. A bomb arrives at his office. A car nearly runs him over, and he's almost hit by falling masonry. Yes, and that's that's got Harry Talbin, hasn't it? That's directed by Jonathan Alwyn. Yes. So, yeah. Fatal Engagement. Uh, mm-hmm. Popular musical comedy star Betty Malone is murdered. Uh, certain peers of the realm are connected. Oh, yeah, that's the one that opens with a shot of all these sort of pillars and a bishop. Yeah, the bishops come to see the lady, isn't yeah. it? Uh, that's written by Louis Marx. Yes. Yeah. Find the Lady. A debutante is spirited away just as she is presented at Buckingham Palace. Oh, that's what to do with white slavery. And that's not even an original an original story. That's yeah, that, like, that's yeah. the that's yeah. the Chinese magician one, isn't it? Yes. Oh yes. If mm. you think Talons is bad, you ain't yes. seen nothing yet. Right. And the Treasure House, which we uh, saw again today, mm-hmm. directed by Wojtek, no less. Yes. Someone tries to kill Mister Reader's friend, reform safebreaker Larry O'Ryan. Who have you got in that? Being uh, slimy. Milton Johns. Milton Johns in his best Milton Johns slime yeah. slime yeah. fest. Isn't yes. It? That's quite a fun one. It is, yeah. But let's quickly zoom through Series 1, Episode 8, from the 11th of June, 1969. 
So we should say the title music, uh, you might know if you've listened to Parsley Sidings. Yes, it's also used for Parsley Sidings. I believe it's called Banjo Boy. Okay. Apparently. Though I've looked up Banjo Boy, and it, mm. the Banjo Boy I keep finding sounds completely different. Okay. So, yeah. Mm. And I said title sequence psychedelic, mm. and even more so in season two when it's yeah. in colour. God, it hurts your eyes in colour. Because it's all sort of art deco-y in, yes. at first, isn't it? Yeah. And then, then they've discovered colour in 1971. Yeah. And I said, I thought in the first series, um, mm-hmm. you see the sort of lady dancing, don't yeah. you? And Mr. Reader sort of, I thought he was a villain sneaking on because <laughs> he had a sort of cloak and a hat and he looked, he looked villainous. Just, I think that's just his coat. I don't think it's yeah. a cloak. In series two, yeah. he doesn't look villainous. He just looks like a perv because he's sort of hobbling <laughs> along after her. Yeah. He's seen a lady and he's following her. <laughs> he's gesticulating with his umbrella, isn't he? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but we we open with David Garth and John Owen bantering over, mm-hmm. or bartering over. They're not bantering, but they're mm-hmm. bartering over, over ordering a coffin. Yes. Because uh, David Garth wants a, a coffin. Mm-hmm. And he knocks John Owen down to five pounds. Yes, and he'll take it away. And in his he, car. he doesn't even need it delivered. He'll take it with me. I, I, you said this was rude, but I did say um, some of the camera angles makes John Owen's chin look like you you could shovel peas off the plate with it. But, uh, <laughs> yes, Mister Hoochins made kidneys for breakfast, mm-hmm. and Mister Reader says he's had an ample sufficiency. Mm-hmm. Thank you, and he don't want no more. But yeah, there are missing persons in the paper. Yes. Aren't there? Well, if they're in the paper, I suppose they're not missing. But, no. Yeah. Uh, so we cut to uh, Sir Jason's office where mm-hmm. Willoughby Goddard is there. Yes. Shall I do my Willoughby Goddard impression? Yeah, good man. I need to hold the microphone away. Okay, yep. Reader! Reader! <laughs> it's like he's in the room. Because he's always shouting that, isn't he? Yes. It? You said he's got a picture of the king behind him. He has, because it was like in police stations. Yeah. They always have a picture of the monarch. And the monarch, in this case, is George, George V. Yeah. So, Sir Jason's got a picture of the king. Mr. Reader appears to have a saucy calendar a up in his saucy, office. Saucy, saucy, saucy. A, saucy, a saucy calendar. A saucy calendar. <laughs> is saucy even saucier it than is. saucy? It's very saucy indeed. Yeah. And I get the feeling that Mr. Reader didn't want that put up. No. But I think uh, Sir, Sir Jason, Jason had got, got it as a job lot. Yeah. And I think Mr. Reader probably sort of mopped his brow when he first saw yes. it. But a, a Miss Martin arrives and says mm-hmm. her aunt has disappeared. Yes. And she used to get monthly dividends, which have stopped, mm-hmm. from the South American Arms Syndicate, mm-hmm. which is run by a Mr. De Silvo, isn't it? Yes. So Mr. Reader and Miss Bellman are uh, thinking about going to the theatre, aren't they? Mm-hmm. they go- I think they go to the theatre quite a lot. Yeah. They're going to see George Arliss in The Green Goddess. Yes. I think Tony Hancock does an impression of George Arliss <laughs> at one point. I assume it's not the. I'm, I assume George Arliss isn't in a green leotard leaping about, no, making you join so. in at I home, don't think is he? So, no. yeah. But uh, Miss Bellman's also getting a dividend every yes. month. Yeah. Ten pounds because mm-hmm. she invested a thousand pounds. When her dad died, she got yeah. got some money for a cottage or something. Yeah, she she inherited a cottage. She, she sells it. And gets a thousand pounds, and then she invested the thousand pounds. And Mr. Reader points out that that ten pound every month on a thousand pound is a twelve percent return, mm. which is really rather impressive, even for them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You'd have to try damn hard to get it these days. Mm-hmm. But yeah, but she had to sign the secrecy thing. Yes. When she invested, to not let on to other people what what she'd invested in, which is mm-hmm. unusual. But apparently, seventeen people in eight months have disappeared. Yes. And they all had money. And yes. Mr. Reader thinks they've been murdered. 
Mrs. Hoochin doesn't approve of Miss Bellman, does, no. she, does she? She's made a braised liver for dinner this time. Oh, mm. goodness me. And uh, so, yeah, Miss Bellman comes round to see Mr. Reader. Mm-hmm. She coughs up the uh, company name, which is the Me- Mexico City Investment Syndicate. Mm-hmm. And she's got a letter from the lawyers, Bracher and Bracher, mm. who have offices in the same building. Yes. Funnily enough. Mm-hmm. Mr. Reader goes to find the investment syndicate, but there's nobody nobody there. They don't open the door. No. And there's, there's just a door with a sign on. Yes. But opposite are Bracher and Bracher. Mm-hmm. And one of the Mr. Brachers is John LeMessurier. It is, yes. Is it true to say he's doing full John LeMessurier in yeah, this? Yes, really. He's doing yeah. every sort of tick yeah, the, the, that you know the, the from Sergeant of, the, Wilson. The, the thing with the tongue that he does, where he sort of sticks, because he sort of sticks his tongue or, out or, a little or bit, putting his he? hand to his head, to his head, yeah, yeah and all, yeah. all of that. But it sort of works in this case because mm-hmm. he, he's meant to be a bit vague as the lawyer, isn't he? Yes. Um, the impression he gives that he's quite disorganised, mm-hmm. but I think actually that's actually a front. It's a front, isn't, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Mm. But they're they're sort of washing their hands of Mr. De Silva and his yes. his, his company, mm-hmm. and they had a file with all his sort of details in, which has been stolen of all his clients of all his yeah. clients, yeah. which has been stolen yes. uh, from the from the safe. Mm-hmm. One one day it was there, and the next day it mm-hmm. wasn't. Mr. Reader doesn't really get an answer about whether this yeah. was investigated or not. No. So Mr. Reader goes to phone Miss Bellman's office mm-hmm. about the theatre. Mm-hmm. But she's not there. Mm-hmm. And the woman there said she had an appointment with Bracher and Bracher. And Mr. Yes. John Lemage denies it, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. So we then cut to Mr. Reader at home, pacing up and down. Yes. And he's worried, he's isn't worried. he? Yeah. And he, he can't sleep. And mm-hmm. Mrs. Hoochin thinks the girl's on his mind, isn't she? Yes. Yeah. Which, which she is. Yes. And it's sort of two o'clock in the morning, he's gone back to his office to make mm-hmm. a list yeah. of missing persons. Mm-hmm. 1924, it yes. says so. No argument there about what the year is. He gets a phone call from the inspector, but there's no trace mm. of her. So he adds Miss Bellman's name to the list. One of the names I noticed on the list was Michael Barrett. Okay. Now, Michael Barrett presented nationwide. Did, I, I, I can't yeah. think it's the same Michael Barrett. Oh, it's just, it's just somebody's picked a name out, yeah. haven't they? So. But yeah, that's the, that's the end of part one. Mm-hmm. Part two. Mr. Reader, there's a person to see you. Mm. And it's Harold Goodwin. Yes. Is it Molly Sugden's Molly brother, Sugden's from, brother from, from That's, that's My, my Boy? boy. Yeah. Yeah. And he's in quite a mess in the pit, isn't he? Yeah, that's right. He's got a letter from Mr. Was it Ike Walker. Yeah. Now, in this, he's playing Wilson. Yeah. Who's an ex-burglar. Mm-hmm. In the book, it's Mills, for yeah. some reason. I don't know why they've maybe they didn't changed wanna... the name. Well, maybe because of, of Kim Mills. Maybe Kim Mills, but yeah. I don't know. Um, he's brought this letter. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a weird letter, isn't it? Yes. So you're, you're going to catch it and yeah. it leaves you red hot or something. Yeah. This is where, yeah, it, well, other people haven't got this, but you, it's you, coming to you. And, yeah. yes, it's, it's, and it turns out that this letter's been infected with smallpox in the episode, yeah. but scarlet fever mm-hmm. in the book hence the red, hence hot. The red yeah. hot thing also has it actually been infected because uh, he doesn't seem to have any effects no well M- mr reader goes off and disinfects his hands yeah but touches the door handle yeah. and his hat <laughs> yes he does contaminate everything he get as he goes but mm. yeah i do like the detail that he can still see what Harold goodwin's up to no, he can't see you just know he just tells it sit like, down yes. <laughs> then he sits down thank you <laughs> <laughs> 
Mr. Reed just sort of, I was going to say, uninfects himself. He disinfects himself. <laughs> yes. Then burns the letter, yeah. doesn't he? But he, he, cheery news um, for Wilson he, he, that he'll be dead in a week. So cut to Sir Jason. There's a Miss Withers. Yeah. So we better just say Mr. Reader has a... Well, it's the secretary for him and Sir and Jason. Sir Jason. Yeah. And Sir yeah. Jason, well, does he choose some of them... Because he can bounce them on the, on his knee, yes, basically. Yes, he chooses some of them because of the way they look and how short their dresses are, I think. Yeah. So, <laughs> so you've got uh, Madeline Smith as one example. Yeah. In the final episode, it's Miss Hawthorne it from is. the Demons, it is. isn't it? Yeah, I don't think it bats her on his knee. <laughs> but yeah, he has a, he has a variety of, uh, mm. of, of ladies of, mm-hmm. of all classes. Cause, yeah. Who's the one that's quite upper class? Oh, that's, that's the one in the um, Fatal Engagement. Mm. Yeah, she's because she's the one that goes and and buys all these sort of. Um, she starts having terrible left wing ideas. Yeah, she, well, she, she? Goes and buys a load of Bolshevik newspapers. Yeah, she? And, mm. well, her, her dad's horrified. Yes, and, and... Yeah, she doesn't have left wing ideas, but she's helping him. She goes and buys a load of newspapers for yeah. him and stuff. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I mean this this whole world is, is very sort of upper class, isn't yes. it? A lot of the time, though. Yeah. Mr. Reader does sort of dig away at it every now he and does. then. Yeah. yeah, Mr. Reader arrives and reports. Miss Bellman's disappearance. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we have the line, reader, you have a criminal mind, because mm-hmm. he's saying about it's a murder plot. So Jason is actually quite good in this, because he lets him take the rest of the day off. Yeah, he's, he's actually... He's, he gives him a lot of leeway. leeway. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's, he's got a lot of bluster to Jason, but he basically trusts him. Yeah. And if Mr. Reader's thinks he's onto something, he'll let him... You let him investigate. Let him investigate. But a lot of time he says it's unofficial, and if anything happens, it's not, you know, no yeah. reflection on the office. So The Attorney General turns up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And then Sir Jason shows off Mr. Reader's chart. Yes. And then just takes all the credit for it, doesn't it? Yes. Yes. So Mr. Reader goes to see Mr. Brecher and says mm-hmm. there's a police officer going to arrest Mr. De Silva. Silva. Silvo. So John Lemage uh, rings up his brother on the phone. Yes. He sounds a little agitated, he is. doesn't he? And mm. can you guess who his brother is? Well, you probably can by this mm. point, but hey. Um, yeah, they make a big thing of that, don't they? Yeah, but there's only one other person it could be. Yeah. 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 John LeMage's brother turns out to be uh, David Garth. Mm-hmm. They enjoy playing chess, don't they? Yes. Basically, they set it up so that Reader is going to come to their house mm-hmm. after being told that uh, De, De, De Silvo is here. He's there, yeah. Mr. Reader turns up and uh, they say Mr. De Silvo is lying down because he's got a headache. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Uh, again, this differs in the book the and, short, the and, short story, yeah. and, and the uh, production in that here Mr. Reed is pushed into a room mm-hmm. where Miss Bellman is yeah. and then the roof starts to come down to crush them Yes, right. so it's real sort of like that cliffhanger in the war games yeah, yeah. Um, where they're in the, in the side rat mm-hmm. you can call it that mm-hmm. um, and the roof's coming down and, yeah. and all that yeah. you said um if they've murdered everybody like that they must get through an awful lot of lamps yes a lot they? of furniture <laughs> yeah because yeah. yeah. it all gets it all gets crashed yeah in i the, guess they've got enough money to in the book ones. mr reader's pushed down a hole yeah like in a trap door isn't the it? carpet's yeah. over a hole yeah and then all water comes in to yeah. drown them mm-hmm. in both cases they're saved in a similar way you but... should say miss bellman is did you say miss bellman yeah miss bellman is in the room yes um, yeah. that Mr. Reed is in and Miss, Be- Miss Bellman is also down the hole in the book but as you said they've really had to change this because yes. to do that water sequence you'd yeah. have to film it in the water tank at Ealing really yeah. 
I think by this point in the season, they probably haven't got Can't enough money. That, yeah. No, no. Also, the whole thing of them pushing him down the trap hole, mm. it's, you'd need a stuntman for that. Yeah. You couldn't risk your star. Um, yeah, it's just more practical to... It's just a, a room and you just push him in. So yeah. it's, yeah. But before the roof starts coming down, Miss uh, mm-hmm. Bellman and Mr. Reader have a little... They sort of ask after each other's sort of private yes, lives do, a bit, yeah. don't they? Yeah. They have a bit of a heart-to-heart. Because mm-hmm. Miss Bellman's been there for quite some time. Mm-hmm. Well, at least a day. Yeah, but Mr. Reader describes himself as a very uninteresting person. Miss mm-hmm. Bellman's not having any of that, is she? No. Yeah. The Brachers don't like Mr. Reader. He's a jumped-up clerk. Mm-hmm. And you said you could hear a little bit of studio talk I'd, back yeah, at I'm that point. Sure I, 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 I think back. you're right, actually, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, later on, there's a bit of a dreadful boom shadow as mm-hmm. well. And I'm sure a bit of the, the set wall in his house wobbled at one point. as well. I think the camera smacked into it. But yeah, You do get these things, but yeah. I, I don't mind at all. Um, when the ceiling's come, coming down, they're playing the Nutcracker Suite, apparently. Mm-hmm bit of irony there and, mm. and mr reader gets a little bit of kissy kissy doesn't he yeah. as he kisses miss bellman on the hand on the hand Mm-mm. yeah that's as much as you can do isn't it yes yeah okay yes. but the door opens and it's wilson who's breaking in yes so he he, he hasn't got smallpox yet at least has no. he? he he's let off basically mm-hmm. so yeah it's not entirely clear whether he's he is infected or not no but yeah, they stood outside the the building, and that's mm-hmm. where the boom shadow is yes. in the top left of the picture. If you mm-hmm. if you want to see, Mister Reader gives uh, Miss Bellman his coat. Yes, to keep her warm because mm-hmm. ladies catch cold, don't they? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, as it said in in the book, well, she, she's, she's down to wet. her petticoats, yeah, isn't she? Petticoat. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's yeah. not really the case here. No. But Mr. Reader says he never catches cold, which is a lie. Yeah, because he's already caught. He's cold. already caught a cold the other yeah. week, isn't he? Yeah. Jump cut to Achoo! Yes. <laughs> and you said, did he really catch a cold in real well, life? It's just, it sounds, if he didn't, he's a really good actor. Because it's, it's very good. Oh, it's all squeaky. Isn't it? Is, yeah. yeah. And I, I can't do it like that. Well, I can do it like that, actually. <laughs> I didn't think I could, but yeah. It's just odd that he's got a cold in two yes. episodes and mm-hmm. it's almost sus- suspected that. Yeah. Oh Christ, he's caught a cold. So yeah, better write it in. We better write it in. I, don't, I genuinely don't know because there's a Sergeant Corp like that where he's got yes, a cold as yes. well, and yeah. he just spends the whole time in bed and and, and uh, yeah. yeah. But Mrs. Hoochin has made Spanish onions boiled in milk for yes. him, and he don't like onions. No, he do don't he? like anything. Does he really? Person? He's not. He's not Miriam Margulies because no. she likes it. She likes, she likes onion. the raw onion. Yeah. 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 But Miss Bellman arrives to take his report for the public prosecutor, mm-hmm. and she makes him drink his medicine. She doesn't does. She? And yeah, she, she she said she'd miss seeing him going to work. And I just wrote, "Has he got a cold? Good acting." Mm. And then he starts to do his report, and then mm-hmm. does it does a nice sneeze right at yes, the end of the episode. She does. But I think that's a really good episode for sort of showing off mm-hmm. how strange it is. Mm-hmm. Um, David Garth and John LeMessurier make very nice villains, don't they? They do, yeah. It's almost sort of hands-off villainy, isn't it? Because they're not there cackling over him. No. They've just shoved him into a room and basically pressed a button, haven't they? Yes, yes. It's that proper sort of English, um, I don't want to dirty my hands with you. There are are other more sort of, shall we say, down-to-earth villains. But this almost does feel... Like a sort of Avengers episode, it, it does doesn't feel like it? The, an Avengers episode because yeah. that, it's that opening scene with yeah. the coffin, yes, and then yeah. and, the, and the the crushing room thing, and mm. and all of that sort of upper class villainy. So. Yes, yeah. yeah, I think if you like 
Yeah, but you could, sort of, you could quite easily swap Mr. Reader for, for Steed. Well, Steed's a lot more confident, I yeah. think. But but, but in the, the yeah. terms of, of being the sort of one driving the story. Yeah, yeah. It could be Steed and Mrs. Peel. But, yeah, we discovered Mr. Reader, I said, via network. Mm-hmm. It has been repeated on Talking Pictures TV once yeah. or twice. Apart from it? the first episode, because yeah, they, they decided the quality wasn't good enough. Yeah. And some of these we must have seen three times at least now. Yeah. So yeah. it really does stand rewatching, I think, as yeah. well. Yeah. And I think this is definitely in my top three series mm-hmm. that I wish somebody would remake. Because we've talked about Karnaki. Yeah. And Big Finish have done Karnaki. They have, yeah. But somebody really needs to rediscover Mr. Reed. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, who would you who would you cast oh, if you got gosh, any ideas? I don't know because Hugh Burton is so good. That's he the is. thing. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's it's 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 difficult to think who else could play the part because yeah. I I found out today there's a radio series yeah from 2007 but it's David Horovich reading the stories. Oh, it's just reading. It's so, not. So yeah, it's not, not an actual dramatization. Yeah, that's a but, shame. Yeah. yeah. But I, I'd, I'd love somebody to have a go at Mr. Yeah. Reader. Gosh, I, I know who you'd cast. You'd probably make him a lot more confident as well yeah. now. Maybe. But, yeah, I don't know. I don't know whether... Would people identify with a, with, with a Mr. Reader in the Hugh Burden vein these days? I don't know. I don't see why not. Yeah, just mm. an interesting thought. But, you know, we waited a long time to do Mr. Reader. Mm-hmm. And we watched them all again. Yeah. And I read a lot of the short stories again, and you yeah. got the TV Times. So we, there is quite a lot of Mr. Reader out there if you, mm-hmm. if you do start to dig. Yeah. And I've still got to, I've still got to read some that because you've got some hardback books that I, I'd never yes, even. Yes, they're they're seen. American ones. Yeah. So they're yeah. published in America. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, they're, they're the 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 one I've got here is uh, the Case Files of Mr. J. G. Reader, which is a Wordsworth edition. That's quite a modern edition, and that, though, that's quite it? a modern yeah. one, and that's yeah. that's got quite a few of the short stories yeah. in it. Yeah, yeah. I decided when I I was I was looking around, I'd try and find some of the older versions. So the American ones I've got, I think, are sixties ones. Yeah, or possibly slightly older. So this has got Room Thirteen, which is the sort of yeah. prequel episode, if yeah. you like. Then the poetical policeman, treasure hunt, the troop, stealer of marble, sheer melodrama, green mamba, strange case, and the investors, mm-hmm. and then terror keep, which is a much longer one as yes. well. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, if you can, if you can find that, if you want a bit of Mister Reader fiction, yeah, which is there. If yeah. if you read uh, books like on a, on a Kindle or whatever, mm. there's there's various. You've different, got some, haven't you? Yeah, 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 full Edgar Wallace works. Yeah. But you do have to bear in mind they are very much of their time. Oh, absolutely. But there, so. we go. but there, there's the mind of Mr. J.G. Reader. Seek it out. Yes. Anyway, that's the end of uh, this episode. Gosh, mm-hmm. so it's been a while since we released. Yes. But uh, been we, we got there in the end. Yes. So thank you, as always, to everyone who's uh, who's helped with it. Mm-hmm. And I do have stuff in the can for the next one you already. Do? Yeah. So I do have a folder. Okay. With two things in it. Gosh. And I'm not entirely sure what we're going to do. No. We've got half an idea. We have, yeah. But in the meantime, thank you for listening and Mm -hmm. hope to see you again soon. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye.
That was episode 66 of Round the Archives. Starring Lisa Parker, Andrew Trowbridge, Nick Goodman and Martin Holmes. Thanks also to Paul Chandler. On the musical side, you heard Dan Tate and Paul Chandler. The script for The Mind of Mr J.G. Reader, The Investors, was by Gerald Kelsey, adapted from the story by Edgar Wallace. And the producer was Kim Mills. <laughs>